0: Being born on an island, like I still find the idea of driving to another country wildly exotic. Be in Antwerp in an hour or in uh, Cologne in an hour and a half used to blow my mind.
1: She sent us to school on um, Bastille Day on the 14th of July wearing French rosettes. In England, my mother was French. Welcome to
0: Continental
2: Riffs. A series of conversations between pairs of artists, makers and producers, that considers Europe through a cultural lens. Objects and experiences chosen by the guests punctuate each episode, as they consider ideas, memories and perhaps realisations that come to them through thinking about the continent of Europe. This edition's guests know each other since their paths crossed some time ago in the Netherlands. Similar to those in other episodes, Annie Fletcher, director of the Irish Museum of Modern Art, or IMA, and visual artist Navin G. Dossos began their conversation thinking of early associations for them with Europe.
0: My dad's cousin used to work for the EEC, I guess it was, back then, and he was a Northern Irish man and working in Brussels. The reason I remembered him was because I saw, like everybody in the world, I think the viral clip of Ronan O'Gara speaking French with this incredible Cork accent. Amazing. Did you see That's it? An ama-
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my sister sent it to me when I was um, working in Limerick for Eva and uh, it really made my day. And he's basically developed his own like European language, essentially. It's an incredible, it's an incredible piece of um of kind of intercultural living in this kind of European skin of like, I can do this. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. Oh, that's so nice you saw it too, because I, it, anyway, it brought back this memory of my dad's cousin. And I just remember just knowing that, knowing that there was these accents and yet he was completely proficient in this kind of sense of being at the heart of Europe, you know. And this was really, I mean, I was five or six
1: and later, mm. you know, hearing him again. Yeah, I think I had a very similar experience in my family because my my mother is French and my father who's English they actually when they met couldn't speak together because my father didn't speak French my mother didn't really speak English but my father did learn French and you know he spoke French very well at home my father actually i grown up in Stoke-on-Trent, but in the 60s had just really wanted to get out of the UK. Ended up going to live in Spain to work on the film industry there when it's still under Franco. Didn't know anything about Europe or wow. France. Quickly learned the language because he knew that was important. And then it turned out he'd learned Catalan instead of thinking <laughs> it was Spanish. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and again, kind of quite fluently and, you know, with great excitement. You know, so he was always speaking about, um, you know, the time that he had in in Spain was super important to him. And it felt like a very big part of my upbringing was this kind of the French influence. We lived in um, Corsica, in the Mediterranean, you know, every summer. I never really felt that English. right? I have to say. Yeah, there was always a part of me that always felt very European. Yeah, I don't know if you, did you feel that? I mean, in some way, especially when, because you went to the Netherlands pretty young.
0: Well, I mean, on my worst days, I worry that I probably sound like Ronan O'Gara in Dutch um, (laughs) (laughs) because I did learn Dutch. And I, I mean, I worked I was there for 25 years and I wonder, you know, I love all of all of that idea of the inflection of how you take over a language and settle into somewhere, realizing that I've spent half of my life in the Netherlands and. I mean, one of the real fascinations I still have and I never let go of is being born on an island. Like, I still find the idea of driving to another country wildly exotic. And especially where I was in Eindhoven for the last sort of 10 years of my working Mm. life.
1: Or a train. Yeah,
0: taking a train, exactly. But just this idea that you could be in Antwerp in an hour or in uh, Cologne in an hour and a half just used to blow my mind. And I think, in fact, the Van where I worked was, you know, really on that trail of Paris, Cologne, the old art world of the early 20th century, the centre of that track of contemporary art. So it's fascinating, really.
1: Yeah, we met in the Netherlands when I was there at the Jan van Eyck Academy down in Maastricht. The Maastricht Treaty. I once went on a date with my partner. He took me to uh, Luxembourg to go and see where the Schengen Agreement had been signed. You know, we went, we went to like go and see where they'd because they'd signed it in the water. Like they all got on a boat and like to be completely like in between these countries. And yeah, this kind of notion of, of this interconnectedness. And I think actually in art that was super important. I think it was one of the greatest things for me getting out of London. Um, and into Europe, in the heart of Europe, it, it taught me that there were many art worlds.
0: Absolutely. Um, uh, there wasn't
1: and- just one. You know, we both met in the centre of Europe in this sense. This kind yes, of you know, exactly. centre of like n- Northern Europe. Yeah. But actually, now we both live sort of really on the edges of Europe. I've been in Greece for eight years. I'm now back on an island uh, living on Aegina and you're you're in Ireland we're actually we're talking but from the opposite ends of Europe. And I wonder if you being back in Ireland has changed how you feel about Europe because you are still in Europe but in a completely different kind of orientation of it. Absolutely, I think about it all the time. It
0: is it's a huge point of interest actually. I'm even thinking about building a part of our programming in the museum called Why Ireland? Why now? Because it is on the edge, if you like, that's very specific. But it's got all of this possibility to kind of embrace and think Europe in different ways. But yet I think sometimes that,
1: that nature of the island makes it, makes it feel a little isolated. When I moved to Greece in 2015, I mean, it was a very different time, but it completely changed my notion of Europe, like in terms of my orientation, like looking at it from the south upwards, but also the idea of, the, of Europe as the archipelago. So actually, it's not all about the centre. It's about islands, the edges of Europe and, and what they have to say and what their experiences are, have completely changed my notion of what happens in the middle and the importance of that as well.
0: That's really beautiful. And I think you're, that's absolutely true. These experiences, the specificness of them or the being particularly where we are has everything to say. And um, Because I thought so much about that when we went to Thessalonica We were teaching together in the Dutch Art Institute. And Mm -hmm. I remember you brought us on this incredible tour. And it was the first time for me where I was able to think about Thessalonica as part of all kinds of expanded ideas of whether it's Europe, but also the Ottoman Empire, the place where Ataturk uh, was born. I mean, extraordinary notions that even break apart the idea of what Europe
1: is. I and mean, that's one of the things that has intrigued me about living in Greece is its relationship to the Ottoman Empire, uh, which is obviously a very fraught one. I studied at university Ottoman art and architecture and this idea of like Islam on the edges of Europe, Orientalism, post-colonialism. And certainly when you came with the students, there was still this moment of we you know we looked at the kind of history of Thessaloniki as having extremely important uh, Jewish community who had come from Spain, for instance, and had been welcomed by the Ottomans uh, to live in Thessaloniki. I think I've always been very attracted to the Mediterranean. Anyway, it's very feels very familiar to me because I'd spent Corsican blood. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's this. You know, my childhood was spent there, and I think the light has completely changed my palette of color. You know, and when I look at the colors, you know, when I came and did this project in Limerick, for instance, like I found myself adding black and white to my paint so much more for it to respond to the light of Ireland.
0: It's true. I mean, you've done this amazing mural um, in in the Grove, this vegetarian cafe in Mm. Limerick. But you've also done a huge mural up at the Irish Museum of Modern Art.
1: You know, I, I enjoy working at kind of architectural scale and, you know, thinking about making paintings that really envelop the person. Which we, you know call wall paintings or murals, and those are two interesting examples. Both in Ireland, of course. The first one was at Emma, and that was working within you know the courtyard at Emma, which is this in, you know the the military hospital, right? That's yeah, what it is, that's right. Military. The
0: retirement home for soldiers of empire. The there Royal we go. Hospital,
1: <laughs> exactly. And I mean, it's so grey, and it was like, okay, well we need to put some serious color in like we need to just like fight the the fight with the brightest colors that i can find and really like have it sing because that's that architecture is so strong that it needs it needs something to really pop it's a space that you walk through it's not a space that you spend like long periods of time in Whereas this, the restaurant in Limerick, the Grove, is a place where you sit. Right. So it's there's
0: much more detail in a way, more more kind of delicate detail with the, yeah, the way that you paint. But it's also
1: responding to how the viewer is um, experiencing it. So when you sit down, there's only like seven tables. It's a very small restaurant. You know, you have your lunch and you're surrounded by this thing and, you know, it's floor to ceiling you know, with a huge amount of detail and it's actually very gentle and there's a huge window that lets in all this light and it needed to respond to the quality of light and to hold on to this gentleness. Even though there are aspects of the work that are not gentle, it's a place where you can sit, you know, and have your lunch alone Mm. and take an interest in your environment without feeling like assailed by the painting, I
0: hope. Absolutely. (laughs) No, it's beautifully described. And I I mean, I'm assuming that the mural will stay. As long as it's loved and wanted. Yeah, uh, fantastic. uh, Well, that's great. People can get to visit it. Yeah, I have this image, but it might be a cliche that from the 90s on, uh, artists, especially after the fall of the wall or maybe the early 2000s, Berlin was the first port of call. Mm-hmm. It was affordable. It was, you know, mm. and artists often kind of pioneer this um, this kind of heading heading out and forming a community. Um, Brussels was next, and and now mm-hmm. I have a feeling a huge amount of artists are going to to uh, first Athens. Uh, was that yeah. one of the reasons you went? Or
1: I mean, you know, one of the things that we've certainly noticed over the last eight years, and certainly since Documenta happened um, in Athens as well.
0: I always think about it as the king of the art world. It's a show that happens every five years. Whoever is nominated as the curator is kind of dominating the kind of conversation for the five years ahead mm. in our small little art world. I don't know, maybe, yeah. maybe I feel that more keenly than you. Um, but the, <laughs> yeah, well, the other I mean, thing I think is that's very interesting about it is that it was started in Kassel in Germany and it was part of the Marshall Plan. So it was yes. part of this uh, sort of rejuvenation or rejuvenation recovery of Europe with all of that funding put in and they decided in their wisdom at the time to channel a lot of it into an idea of a massive contemporary art show as if mm. art was this kind of civilizational force or maybe yeah. the force of capitalism or something and and yeah. indeed it went to Athens.
1: Yeah and that was one of the first times I think it had been outside of Castle I mean part of it happened in Castle and part in in Athens and you've got to think this was like 2000. And 16, I think Mm -hmm. Greece was very much going through political dissent of like the collapse of the economy and also the kind of politics of what it meant to be sort of bailed out by Northern Europe or to have all of these like another thing
0: that Ireland and, uh, and Greece have in common.
1: Exactly, exactly. And all of a sudden, this kind of German, international German art festival decides to come to Athens. And it was super problematic in a lot of ways because, you know, the the painful time that it was going through. But that painful time also was producing a very vibrant art community. And you know, I think the director had some good intentions, but it it did create a huge amount of um, disquiet and debate within, certainly within Greece, um, about what it meant to host an art show that was dominant in the space. Of course, you know there was a lot of talk about, you know, Athens is the new Berlin, and it was pretty annoying. One thing to kind of really point out, which is really important, is that Berlin the local government specifically went about producing the conditions in which artists could move to Berlin and have long-term lives there.
0: Right. So there was an
1: entire structure in place. It it was an affordable place for people to be able to go and work who didn't have much money, like artists or whatever, creatives, and also have families and put down roots. That was a really specific intention, you know, basically re-inhabiting these parts of Berlin that that were empty that's really Um, interesting so good
0: political planning and
1: exactly so actually what you have is you end up having a lot of people who who spend time in Athens but it's quite transitory because it's not so easy to put down it's not
0: sustainable right Um,
1: yeah but Annie like I mean I know that in Ireland recently they're trialing this idea of like the universal um, income for artists
0: And really great to see. It is a pilot. It's a three year pilot, as I understand it. I'd love to look more at that Berlin model, you know, of of how you actually create the infrastructures for um, Mm. creative life, but also just young life and these really progressive European models. I mean, if there was any moment to really start to dig down and share examples
1: of what might work, I think it's now. But that is also that again is to do with the position of Ireland on the edge of Europe.
0: Especially in the face of Brexit, it, it's at a moment of great potential to re engage with Europe at another level, you know, to mm. understand its Europeanness. It makes me think about my my passport. And that's one of the things I kind of thought about my passport as one of the objects Um because I'm kind of interested after all these years, why I've held on to my Irish passport and mm. that, of course, on some levels, I could imagine people's hackles rising, thinking, why wouldn't you? Of course, you know, but for 25 years, I never got a Dutch passport. And on one level, that was wonderful. You know, free flow Europe. I could travel everywhere. I could work. But it also meant I couldn't vote because mm. if you didn't have a Dutch passport, you, you could only vote in municipal elections. And the other really significant thing that I had no idea about until I, I left Irish shores is that the Irish have no postal vote. And I always remember in the late 90s and talking to my Bosnian neighbours and I was saying, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? I think we were just having dinner some evening and they said, oh, we're going to vote. And I remember being amazed at the, the fact that this emergent nation, you know, mm. in the middle of this kind of war torn uh, scenario and the infrastructure was there. Um, and as a diaspora, they could vote.
1: Yeah, I think it's the same. You know, I think it's the same in Greece. I don't think they have a postal vote. And it's interesting, given both country, Ireland and Greece both have these huge diasporas.
0: I think it's exactly because of those diasporas.
1: But it's it's funny because I think a lot about this idea of like Ireland it being in the EU and and this kind of question of identity. I mean, when I first went to Immer, I mean, I was absolutely blown away by Shane Cullen's work. Ah, um, just the scale of it and the dedication of it. Incredible work that's there to be read. And certainly thinking about that in relation to my childhood experiences in London of. Um, ira bombings my understanding of what the ira was um you know i mean the, ha- the the windows in our house shook when there were bombs in in the city like but you know to come as an adult to experience that work with a completely different understanding of uh colonialism and anti-imperialism and standing there and thinking what did it mean post-brexit That Ireland was still part of Europe and not part of, like, the British Isles. It felt like a very, very important and poignant thing, you know, that it's maintained this kind of Europeanness in this sense. And I just remember standing in front of Cullen's 1993 work, Fragments sur les institutions républicaines quatre, an incredibly large-scale work that fills an entire corridor, um, what surprised me the most is it's actually painted on polystyrene, so it's ex- extremely light. And on it are is this exquisite handwriting, uh, and it's transcriptions of secret messages that were smuggled out of the H blocks in the Maze during the hunger strike in eighty one. Knowing that, like my experience as a child of what I thought this thing was was so. I mean, I was a child; I wasn't sort of politically active, but you know, I was experiencing a, a, a different end of it and the english end of it and then to be in front of Cullen's work was like the the final really important piece of that movement away from britishness from me and really sort of engaging with my europeanness as a form of like political desire to distance myself from something as well you know like and so this is not necessarily me or certainly not everything that represents me you know, I, I think his work is so extremely powerful. And again, like, there's this incredible quietude to it because you read it, it's a meditation, you know, on the, those words.
0: That's such an important work in our collection. I'm so glad you got to see it. And I think what's fascinating is it took him five mm. years. And I, I, yes, there's something really. I could imagine that you would respond to about this, like, the physicality of painting, mm. you know, taking on this huge
1: scale, the labor. Yeah. Mm. And it's, it is a meditation, you know, and it, it, it's a meditation for the artist and it's a meditation for the viewer. For me, what's interesting is artworks that are created like this, that actually give you the chance to think about the subject whilst in it. Mm. Um, it's this very, you know, it keeps you there and it, and it allows you the space to really engage with the subject in this different way. I mean mm. I love the fact it's
0: in French of course and yes. maybe maybe looks back to the idea of 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 you know the annals of history or the notion of the French Republic. So yeah. I think yeah you're right it sort of it it taps around all of those kind of aspirational ideas of democratic Europe but also this complexity of um, the independent struggles and and even what you perhaps in in Britain knew and didn't know through the education system, but what you experienced. Mm. Uh, so
1: totally, totally, but also remember, my my mother was French. She sent us to school on um, Bastille Day on the fourteenth of July, wearing French rosettes in England, and she was fiercely proud of the French Revolution and not having um, a royal family, which she you know, was very vocal about. But also, you know, my first book, literally one of my first picture books was about the French Revolution and, and, you know, the decapitation of the king. It's one of the first images I remember. So like, there is a part of me that really connects very, very deeply to this idea of, of political change and political will that he is referencing there as well. Like, it feels like it's part of me. So there's one thing I wanted to ask you, Annie, as a as a director of, of a national museum. Um, you know, one of the things that really has caught my imagination over the last sort of eighteen months has been the environmental activism that, um, for instance, just stop oil and going into museums and especially art galleries and throwing soup or sticking themselves to paintings as this kind of form of of, uh, visibility in many different European museums?
0: Of course, we all talked about it and it's probably one of the reasons why we were all wondering about how museums can kind of add to the conversation. It's interesting that it's understood as this space uh, for protest when actually most artists, and I suspect a lot of uh, museum directors are entirely sympathetic to discussions around um, environmental change. So I think a lot of museums sort of pivoted very fast into talking with the activists, uh, bringing them in, creating space. You know, there's a great creativity to it, of course, you know, whether it mm. is with the orange powder or carefully sort of only throwing soup on glazed work.
1: I mean, I, I certainly chose to um, include one of the logos in my, in my recent work in Limerick, the Just Up Oil logo that alongside other logos of, of organizations that are working on climate uh, activism. So, you know, the work in a way is very sort of, um, you know, pastoral and, you know, idyllic and green and, you know, it's called The Grove. It's very much about this kind of the sacred grove in a way. But I think, you know, it was very important at the, in some way to make reference to the fact that, you know, none of this will exist if the relationship we have with the planet continues the way that it does. And so at the very top in this border are these symbols of organisations like um, Extinction Rebellion, Just Up Oil, um, also actually vegan anarchism and uh, the Soil Association, which are all completely different types of organisations or non-organisations if you're an anarchist, who are actively involved in trying to... Uh, save the planet because i do think that all defense you know is essentially self-defense when it comes to the planet and i think we have to speak more directly to what this kind of activism means how it's being framed by government and and i really do think that that needs to be something that's brought more into the mainstream and not seen as a kind of outlier i think it needs to it needs to be brought in um, and I think that talking about Just Up Oil again, I think it's one of these you know, very strong memories I have, which is, you know, in 2022, um, two young activists, Phoebe Plummer and Anna Holland, threw tomato soup at, um, at Van Gogh's Sunflowers in the National Gallery of Art in London. And for me, that was an incredibly poignant moment to see these young people who glued themselves to the wall and spoke to the press about their... You know, fear for the future and their need to engage doing that in an art institution that they had chosen a museum and a painting yeah. to um, frame their, you know, their their kind of discourse. I'm really interested in that idea of
0: whether it's attack or whether it's actually theatre, uh, yeah. you know, and how we might um, deal well, with I it. Well, I think
1: it is. Yeah, I mean, I think it is attack. But it's also quite well orchestrated, so it's quite performative. And you know, what? How would I feel if an if an artwork of mine was centered upon in this way? I, I mean, I would be thrilled. Yeah, I would. I mean,
0: art, art is like can imagine that it's like another marking, another biography of the work in a way, another kind of layer to to what you're trying to talk about. What you're highlighting is in a, this this sense of extreme urgency,
1: right? And yeah, I think absolutely. the it created this kind of very networked performance you know and kind of it became this kind of european stage where all of these different museums and these famous paintings were actually being connected through this narrative and i found that incredibly powerful but also you can mm. see that
0: they've started to take over on a theatrical level like other uh, highly visible occasions like uh... The snooker championship with all that orange talcum powder, which was very Mm. kind of visually arresting. So there's still there's still a kind of performative theatricality around what's happening. What's interesting is the idea that the art museum of any kind in a European city is a kind of totemic place, right? It's Mm. a marker that you might visit. So it's interesting that that's one of the associations. So I mean, and and the other point is that it's owned by the public. It's it's a civic space. It's a space that we're always trying to encourage discussion and engagement. So on one level, Absolutely. of course, it slightly makes my blood run cold at the idea of somebody chucking tomato soup on something in the museum. But on the other hand, of course, we've all been talking about it because we've been thinking about, like, what kind of engagement and and that museums, I think, in general are I can't say all, but certainly working with the, the kind of collaborators I work with, were deeply sympathetic to the urgency of this situation and very aware mm. that even the museums themselves are not exactly always the most sustainable machines. And there's kind of a huge movement there, actually, specifically in Europe with organizations like the Internationale to think really to, to kind of uh, think much more sustainably around how we how we even think renovation, transport, all of that work throughout Europe. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, another thing that I think a lot about in terms of, you know, we've just been talking a bit about institutions. And I thought it'd be nice to sort of bring up this hosting the Olympic Games. You know, in 2004, Athens hosted the Olympic Games. That's right. I remember Um, being riveted by it at the
0: time, actually.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, the city underwent a huge change to be able to host it and create all these, you know, like many places to all of these stadiums. And now when you walk around these areas of Athens um, a lot of these stadiums are in complete ruin. Are they? Cuz um, that seems yeah. to be a
0: phenomenon in lots of places.
1: Yeah, um but one use that um did come up which is is this um the Taekwondo stadium which is quite down, you know, near the sea. That is one of the places that has maintained a life. Um, and back in 2016 2015-2016 when I um, had just moved to Greece it was, actually ho- it was actually housing um, refugees who were arriving. So there were hundreds of people sleeping on the floor in the Taekwondo Stadium. Um, and I found it fascinating that this building that had been built in 2000 and, you know, for 2004 to host the Olympics, that um, you know, the entire world was looking at it you know, or coming to it for this event, was now using those same spaces to essentially h- house but also sort of hide this enormous influx of refugees. And then actually in 2016, Art Athena, which is the kind of like, you know, long standing art fair in Athens was also held in the Taekwondo Stadium, obviously not the same time that it was inhabited by refugees. It was still visible that there had been a, the presence of a community in that space through like, you know, writing on the wall or, I mean, all kinds of little details.
0: Layers, these different layers of um, use, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And And I think that, again, for me, there is something about that relates to this about Europe, about Greece being on the edge of Europe, that all these people wanted to, were escaping something and coming into Europe. These buildings that were created for this international standing to be viewed by the world during the olympic games you know were then being used in all of these ways to house this refugee crisis to you know potentially you know also it was pretty invisible these these communities who were living in these spaces they were you know they were hidden in many ways in these spaces and you know this is another thing of being about on the edge of europe you know about who's watching who isn't where the borders are what the use is um, you know there's a kind of tumult there that for me um was really totally um present in that taekwondo stadium that hosted taekwondo <laughs> refugees and then you know art athena this you know art fair yeah you know, how could a building kind of contain all of these realities
0: yeah just reflecting on news that has come out in ireland over the last week uh which perhaps pushes this to an even more absurd level and um in that we have a huge concert called Electric Picnic, uh, mm-hmm. which is yeah, kind know. of uh, yeah a big you know festival, uh, Ireland's Glastonbury or whatever, and the um, there has been a decision made that refugees will now move into all of the glamping tents.
1: But I mean, I saw that in Lesvos in twenty fifteen that um, you know young people from all over Europe had donated their their, their camping tents from festivals. Um, were arriving in their hundreds, if not, you know, if not thousands, to these islands on the forefront of the refugee crisis, and were and were housing people, you know. And it was it was a known thing that that's what all these tents were these pop up tents that kids had at festivals were then becoming part of this kind of crisis architecture. Yeah, po- post festival tents. So you know, as actually part of Art Athena, this art fair, um, I was invited to make an artwork. During the um, art fair, and I made a work called Capacity, in which I painted how whatever the uh, the the full capacity of the building had been at its fullest of refugees, which I think was several thousand people. I painted, I think, two thousand people sleeping next to each other all over the walls of the booth in a kind of grid. I drew them all in and invited people to call them to show what it looked like to have you know a representation of this community that had been living there in the space just prior to this event um and i think it was really important to kind of make an artwork that spoke to that yeah that's, um, that's
0: exactly what art can do right it can re evoke or reinsert something in a in in a context absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah i like that you called it capacity as well because you know that's the one thing we're all obsessed about in how we measure stadiums right
1: absolutely <laughs> in terms of their yeah. capacity yeah no, capacity is a fascinating word and it, you know, it felt like exactly right for that.
0: Yeah.
2: Before their continental rifts end, Annie Fletcher and Navin Gidosos put forward something that for them catches the
0: essence of Europe. So yeah I was thinking of an object and actually when I now that I realize it was a fresco naveen I must have mm. you know subconsciously been thinking about you the notion <laughs> of the wall drawing because uh, uh but it was I was 9 and we were on holidays the classic tent and the car and everybody sitting stickily in the back but my mum was determined to take us somewhere cultural the the piece I was thinking about is the last supper which is this wonderful mural um in Milan still existing from of course the epically famous Leonardo da Vinci but to see something like still on the wall still where he built it you know maybe not like where we see paintings now you know removed to the museum it just blew my mind the scale of it and the sense of this thing that you had seen in in books but I didn't know that I particularly liked art or something I just remember being quite overwhelmed by it but I, I love the idea that she was, you know, she brought us to see something so ambitious and I, it still yes. just sticks in my mind. So that's my yeah. my European image.
1: My object is a place, but it's um, it's where I came in this morning by boat from Egidna, where I live on an island, into Piraeus Port. Uh, and I got on the metro and I came up to the studio. And for me, Piraeus Port just always has this incredible quality to it. It's a place that I used to... Um, you know, commute on a sort of weekly basis in and out of Athens, but also it's this port that is such an important port in Europe, but is also got all these boats coming from all over the world, but it's completely phenomenal to see this gateway um, and the traffic that's coming in and out where boats are coming from, whether that's kind of enormous super yachts or it's container ships or it's oil or whatever it is. It's a It, it speaks to me of like the vibrancy and the movement and the the complexity of this particular edge of Europe.
2: You've been listening to an edition of RT Radio's Continental Riffs with contributors Annie Fletcher, director of the Irish Museum of Modern Art, IMA, and visual artist Naveen G. Dossos, whose conversation was inspired by the continent of Europe. And of course, do check out for further episodes of Continental Riffs on RT Radio 1 and wherever you get your podcast. Good evening, I'm Shik and Éanloan. Thank you for listening.